Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, welcome to this episode 341 of Charlotte's Podcast, Beyond 300. I'm here with co-hosts Sarah Archer and Hannah LaRue, and we've got a great lineup for you today. Uh, yeah, we sure do. We're going to start off first with an author feature of cl- critically acclaimed bestselling storyteller Stephen James and his novel Broker of Lies, which is a government intelligence thriller that explores the complexities of keeping secrets, finding truth, and pursuing justice. Yeah, and up next we have a two-minute tip from Paul Reale of Charlotte Lit called The So-Called, Writing Rule- So-Called Rules of Writing. Part three. Yeah, we have a uh, blog post discussion uh, by Joe Conjol. He's been on the show before. Um, his title this time is Three Words I Live By, Never Give Up. Looking forward to hearing that one. And then after that, we're going to finish with our reading recommendations, book pitches, community and listener engagement, and what's coming in the next episode. Yeah, but first, what's up with the podcast books? Well, we're celebrating... The release of book three in the Write Quote series this month titled Writing, Process, and Tools. Yes, we are. We're so excited to share these quotes. They're inspirational. They're practical. Lots of great tips in there. Um, we've drawn the quotes from over 500 podcast interviews with hardworking, award-winning, and New York Times bestselling authors in more than 33 states and five countries. Yeah, and this book reveals how writers really feel about the writing process and tools. If you want to learn more, just head over to our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, and click on the Podcast Books tab in the menu bar. Um, You can order this book online and in print wherever books are sold. Also, don't forget that the first book in the Write Quotes series, which focuses on the writing life, can be downloaded free online. It's our gift to the writing universe. (laughs) So you can look for that link on the Podcast Books page of our website. Yeah, and you can also pre-order the upcoming books in the series now. Uh, when you do, you help support the podcast. Um, of course, here's the lineup. You have uh, you know about the first book, the one that's free. The second one was Learning to Write, and we're now dealing with the uh, writing process tools. But uh, coming uh, in June, the book is Storytelling, Inspiration, and Research, July, Writing Techniques and Characters, August, Writing Community Revision and Editors, September, The Emotional Writing Journey, and October, Publishing and Book Marketing. And if you want to receive all eight of these books for free, you can join our street team. The link to join is at the contact tab on the menu bar at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And also, if you just go to the podcast books page on the website, you can find a link there. All you have to do to receive all the books for free is to agree to leave short, honest reviews. Um, Just a few words about how you felt about the books. These aren't heavy reads, but they are full of weighty tips and reflections. Yeah, and don't forget that if you become a Patreon supporter of the show for as little as $5 a month, we will give you all the books for free before they release. And that's in addition to the 150 exclusive interviews you will be able to access on our Patreon channel on the craft and business of writing. Yeah, we're really excited about this. Uh, It was fun to put together. And it's going to be a great resource, and we're going to be doing workshops in the future uh, around these books uh, in person, maybe online as well, because there's just a lot of uh, great content in there by a lot of uh, writers who've been down the path of uh, publishing, whether it be traditional or indie. So right after this, uh, we're going to start with Act One, our interview segment of the show. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. 
You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, here we are in Act One, uh, the interview portion of the show. We've got uh, author Stephen James. I really enjoyed uh, this interview and also reading this book uh, titled Broker of Lies. Sarah, tell us about Stephen. Sure. Um, he's a best-selling, critically acclaimed author. He's written 18 novels that have won more than a dozen national and international awards, including four Christie Awards for Suspense and an International Book Award. His thrillers have been praised by Suspense Magazine, Booklist, and the New York Journal of Books, and received star reviews from both Library Journal and Publishers Weekly, who called his work thought-provoking and riveting. And when he's not writing, he teaches other writers at events around the globe. Hannah, tell us a little bit uh, the synopsis for this book and some of the praise for Stephen. Yeah, so Broker of Lies is about the man who knows all our secrets and has a secret of his own when Travis Brock, a high-level Pentagon redactor with an eidetic memory, finds a clue to solving the tragic arson that took his wife from him. He risks everything to find the truth and chances losing himself in the process. Um, best known for his psychological thrillers, he has received... Du- dozens of honors and awards for his books his novel every wicked man won the 2018 international book award for best mystery uh and suspense so stephen james is an accomplished thriller writer um suspense magazine who named stephen's book stephen's book the bishop their book of the year says that he sets the new standard in suspense writing yeah and he's a really down-to-earth uh guy we were uh, had a good conversation but even offline we were talking about the fact that he actually wrote a book uh uh, that was set in Charlotte that in, involved uh, uh, they had a scene involving the underground gold mines from the 1830s and I'd mentioned him I was thinking about including that in my next book in the series so he actually sent me a map of some of the gold mines in uptown Charlotte so uh, thanks to that uh, Stephen appreciate that uh, we'll work that into the next uh, deadly declaration sequel <laughs> uh, so anyway um, I'm excited to have this uh, interview so let's uh, let's share it now Stephen, welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me here. It's glad I'm glad to be here. Yeah, and and congratulations on Broker of Lies, which is I think the 18th or the 19th novel. What what are we up to now? I guess it is 18. It's like all of a sudden time. I look back, I'm like time flies. It's been doing <laughs> this for a while, I guess. But no, yeah, I'm I'm excited. It's been it's been a great opportunity over the years just to tell stories, different types of stories to uh, different audiences, and I've. I've been honored to be able to keep keep plugging forward as a novelist. Yeah, that's great. Well, I'm really enjoying the thriller. I, I, I got lots going on now with the loose. <laughs> I'm, I'm in. A, I'm 200 pages in. So the good news is I won't be able to inadvertently ask any spoiler <laughs> questions. But I can tell you, you've got me hooked. You have me hooked early, so I'm really excited about it. And I'd like to start uh, with your main character, Travis Brock. And uh, here's why: he's for our listeners, he's referred to as a redactor. Um, and he works in the basement of the Pentagon at a level that's kind of unknown down low. But here's why I was intrigued by this character, because in my former life, when I was a lawyer early in my career, I represented some journalists who were submitting Freedom of Information Act requests. And uh, one of them was uh, Charles Shepard. We opened up some files on Jim and Tammy Baker, and he wrote a book about uh, uh, the downfall of Jim Baker. Um, And it was only through the FOIA that some of these records became available for you being the acronym for Freedom of Information Act. And so this is very interesting to me, uh, but but to ground our readers a little bit, since that's not something people typically come across in their regular daily lives, let's talk about FOIA for just a minute. 
Yeah, so anyone can request information from the government, and there's no specific form or anything you have to do. You might say, well, this is from the FBI. I want to request these documents. You can send it in. And so in uh, in this book, in this new series, this main character, Travis, works, as you mentioned, deep down in the Pentagon as a Defense Department redactor. So basically, he has almost a photographic memory. So he studies all of the top secret uh, files, all the top secret programs that we have, and decides what can and cannot be released to the public, what information. And so he is the man who knows all of our secrets, even more than the president. And of course, since it's a thriller, things eventually go wrong, but... (laughs) But uh, I always thought it was like I I love sort of espionage stories, thrillers and, and so on. But I'd never heard of anyone using that type of a character as like the main character yeah. for a story yeah. for a book or movie or something. So, yeah, I decided to give it a shot. And that was it was really fun. He's not like a superhero. He's just very flawed and very human. And he eventually has to rise to the occasion at the end. But he starts, I think, pretty relatable kind of guy. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I never thought about all that goes on on the other end because when you just ask for the information, you want it right away. But they're getting hundreds and thousands and millions of these requests, and they're having to deal with them. Uh, but but here's what's interesting about him. Like you said, he's um, he's kind of an analyst. Uh, he doesn't have these spy quality built. He's almost like he's almost like Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan before Netflix turned him into what they did right <laughs> he a little bit actually when i was writing it i was thinking of like the hunt for red october and some of the earlier clancy you know novels where where jack ryan starts as an analyst and eventually works his way up and so on so travis doesn't necessarily have the skill set of a spy but he ends up working with a couple of other characters one in particular who kind of does and so she's a homeland uh security operative homeland operative and um, so she kind of has those skills. He's kind of got the intellect, but he's starting to walk the journey toward becoming more of a hero throughout this story. Yeah. Well, uh, you mentioned the other character. Um, she's a disavowed Homeland Security operative who's on the run, uh, thanks to Travis's help, uh, because they intersect early in the book. Yeah. Uh, and it made me wonder, um, is that a real job? Do they uh, have do they have these teams that try to get uh, weapons through security at airports? They actually do. And uh, that was one of the reasons why I ended up writing this book was a number of years ago, I was doing research and I came across, they call it a red team. So um, there's this red team that tests the TSA checkpoints and uh, try to get bombs or weapons across the uh, checkpoint just to basically test the security of our checkpoints. And they're usually about 95 to 96% effective in (laughs) successful in getting you know, materials, which is not a very encouraging statistic. No. I remember when I first read that, that month, they, um, they fired whoever was in charge of this program and hired some new people. But, but I remember that statistic would just shock me. I thought that that's a, cannot be good if right. this team is able to get almost hundred percent of their, their things across. So, yeah, so that's her job. She, um, she tries to sneak weapons past uh security checkpoints and, yeah well that that is kind of a scary stat um, and so early in the book she's doing her job and she gets arrested and she thinks okay well it's the first time it's ever happened to me but i'll get out of this soon because my boss will just call them and you know that doesn't happen they start shipping her off to an interrogation site and she's like what the hell's going on here yeah um, so but t- tell us how um this character uh travis 
Brock differs from uh, the characters in your other thrillers? Yeah, I did a, a series of 11 novels with um, an FBI agent named Patrick Bowers, who basically uses 21st century technology to try to track serial offenders, killers, arsonists, and so on. And so in that book, he is equipped with the skills and training to do his job. He's a, he's an environmental criminologist, but he, he's intellectual in the sense, but he's also been trained as an FBI special agent. Well, in this book, um, Travis has never really received special training in that realm. So some people make the difference differentiation between an action story and a thriller. I don't know if I completely agree with this, but then in an action story, your hero has basically the training to do his job. And the thriller, he's like, he has to rise to the occasion. And I kind of get where people are coming from. But in that realm, so with this Homeland security operative, it would be an action story because she's been equipped and trained. But with Travis, it's more of the thriller where he's like a normal, everyday kind of guy thrown into these extraordinary circumstances. And he's got to figure out a way to um, you know, work with her, but also he's on the run and has to end up stopping a terrorist attack. And so to ground our readers or uh, listeners early in the book, uh, we find out uh, that uh, his wife uh, died in, in a fire and he comes to believe it's arson and, and he doesn't, and he's been trying to figure out for years who was behind it. And so he's sort of uh, researching this, which puts him in connection with this other woman. Um, but uh, you have it, um, you add two dimensions to this. Uh, you have the these good guys being chased by the <laughs> bad guys and by the good guys. Now, this is not the first time this has been done, but I, I like the technique because it gives what makes it makes it hard on the author. You got more people to try to <laughs> help yeah. your characters get get by. But talk about the value of that technique for a thriller writer and why you use it. Well, one of the things with uh, a lot of, if you read a lot of thrillers, you'll find that very often there are different point of view characters that are introduced. And one of the reasons we do that is because you can easily create suspense when you have a character who is aware of, well, let me say, let me put it this way. Um, whatever point of view character you have has to be present in a scene. So if you have lots of different scenes, lots of different places, you can have different point of view characters, but one of the reasons we do it is because if, let's say you're in the villain's point of view or perspective, you can allow readers uh, to be aware of danger that the other characters are not aware of. Right, right. So, yeah, so you can put people in peril and, you know, readers are like, no, don't open the door. The killer's <laughs> on the other side of the door. Don't, don't open the door. But, of course, that character doesn't know that there's someone on the other side of the door. And so we use multiple point of views quite a bit to create suspense and mm. um so and the other thing that i like about stories like what you just mentioned is also tension is created from unmet desire so if you have one character and i'll just say like a bad guy chasing them or something you have some tension but if you add a third element in there and now you have two characters that you're like okay i kind of like this character he's kind of interesting but I really don't want her to be successful because then my hero will get caught. Kind of reminds me of the, I don't know if you ever saw the movie, The uh, Fugitive, back in yeah, the day with yeah. Harrison Ford and, yeah. and uh, uh, Tommy, Tommy, Lee, Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah. Tommy Lee Jones. So yeah, so like both of those characters, I mean, in the sense we cheer for both of them, but we're like, we don't want Tommy Lee Jones to be successful because <laughs> then he's going to catch Harrison Ford. We don't want to, you know, so yeah, that's they can, good. 
play with that a little bit. So yeah, that dynamic is, is present a little bit in this story. Well, you know, one thing, a, a lot of thrillers, um, you don't think of them as being uh, cerebral in some respects, but uh, you do stop at some point and uh, have one character sort of toss this question out uh, early in the book. Uh, there's a scene where she asks uh, Travis uh, Brock says, will he seek justice or revenge yeah. when he finds out who killed his wife? And he's like, wait a minute, what do you, what's going on here? What are we talking about? You know, because <laughs> in, in most thrillers, it's let's simply kill the bad guys. But you pose this question that while they're running for their lives, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, talk about that. Talk about uh, why you threw that in and maybe a little bit about this difference between, you know, justice and revenge. Uh, you talk about, uh, injustice being a form of oppression, right? But let's talk about justice versus revenge. Oh, that's a good question. So, you know, I always think stories that matter ask big questions. So um, obviously this is a thriller and I write suspense novels, but I always like to have sort of a moral question in the story, uh, whatever that might be. And so they vary with different books. But with this one, I really tr try to ask the question, you know, if um, let's say that the government does not see justice done so you know there's someone who's a villain or whatever and he's 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 set free well at what point should we as individuals take justice into our own hands because isn't justice worth sacrificing your own freedom for to see it accomplished so that was kind of the question where I was like, I wonder, you know, obviously most people would say, oh, you shouldn't take justice into your own hand. I, I understand where we're coming from. But of course, you have to ask, well, what if uh, you had the opportunity to see justice prevail? And uh, would it mean that it's, is there a line between justice and revenge? Is there, is it a continuum uh, or spectrum, you know, where one uh, eventually turns into the other? And so Whenever I start writing a novel, I don't have the answers. Like <laughs> for me, writing a novel is the exploration of the question. So, so this whole idea of justice and should he uh, pursue justice and what would that look like to find the arsonist uh, who, uh, you know, was responsible for this fire where he lost his wife. That was interesting for me. I know what Dirty Harry would do. He'd say, hey, <laughs> I bet you're wondering whether I have had five bullets or six bullets <laughs> in this gun. No, um, yeah, it's it's um, yeah. it is interesting, and in, in, in a lot of media, movies, and so on, you know, vengeance is tends to be justified pretty easily. I didn't want to justify it easily, hmm. um, so. You know, I love certain movies, different types of movies and so on. Like, let's just say the John Wick movies, like they're very action oriented and I usually enjoy them. But like the guy's dog gets killed and he kills 81 people. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm that really, I was like, <laughs> is that really justify me. So, but, so let's, yeah. let's talk uh, about the settings real quick before you do a reading. Uh, have, you oh, visited, yeah. have you visited any of the settings in this book? And can you talk about what you saw or is it classified? Yeah, no, I was actually able to tour the Pentagon uh, twice. And um, so I try to include information in the book where a lot of people may not know, but I try to be as accurate as possible. For instance, if you're in the Pentagon and you look out a window, it's kind of yellowish tinted because the windows are all treated to protect against different unspecified threats. But I mean, just the fact that, you know, most people wouldn't know if you're in the 
Pentagon and you look out the window that everything is kind of yellowish tinted, but people who work there would obviously know that. So, so those kind of details I love to include where people are like, oh, well, that's interesting. Like I didn't know that before. And I was also able to visit um, uh, a Department of Energy site called Y12, which is in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and, and uh, which ends up be, becoming really vital to the whole story. Um, and uh, and so it was super fascinating for me to try to include, you know, details that are authentic, obviously without giving anything super secret away. But mm-hmm. but I, when I whenever I read, I don't know about you, but right. like whenever I read a novel or thrillers. I kind of like the inside scoop yeah. sort of feel like, oh, wow, that's, you know, inside information. I didn't really know that. Before. So you've written all these thrillers. Um, do you have a background? I mean, are you a spy or something already? <laughs> <Do> you... <laughs> I, my only background is as a storyteller. So okay. in all truth, I have never, uh, I've spent years, uh, probably almost now decades at this point studying, uh, you know, criminal investigation tactics and, and uh, espionage and so on. But, but um, no, my ba- <laughs> background in real life is pretty boring. <laughs> well, if you were, you couldn't tell us anyway. So that's okay. Yeah, there you yeah, go. So, yeah. Uh, but, uh, so, no, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you got a little reading force. Uh, you want to set it up and uh, anytime you're ready. Yeah. You know, this is really just from the opening chapter. And um, as you mentioned, there's a fire. So I thought I would just read a little bit about um, he's in the hospital now thinking back to what happened. Um, He watches the nurses walk away and it says in silence, I watched the two nurses walk away because of the bandage covering my left eye. I had to turn my head in order to do so. When my neck flexed, the burns on it sent tight streaks of pain shooting down my spine and I had to stop and stare upright again, trying to catch my breath and quiet the pain stabbing through me. Beyond the door, I heard the incessant beeping of a monitor in another room and the irregular sound of a squeaky cart being rolled down the hallway. Then the door closed as they left me alone in the room, sterile and stark, a bone white tomb. As I lay there waiting for the doctor, my senses seemed to become keener. The charred smell of my burns hadn't gone away and I wondered how long it would take before it did or if the odor would be locked in my memory forever, probably locked in forever. And the reason I kind of chose this is just to get a feel for his uh, character. He remembers everything. And so the fact that he would just be sitting in the hospital, remembering this pain, realizing I'm never going to forget this pain. And he actually uses the pain sort of in a weird way, like as penance. In other words, he feels like he should have saved his wife. Like he rushes back into the house, which is on fire, to try and save her and isn't able to do so. So when they're about to give him some drugs to basically clean his, he, he, most of his body is, well, touched with or or burned. Like 30% of his body, I think, is burned. and But he won't let them give him any drugs when they scrub out the burns because he feels like that is, he, he deserves to be punished in some way for not saving his wife. So it was really an interesting kind of question to ask myself is, you know, what? how can you show what he's really like early on where he's courageous? Like this house is on fire and he rushes into a burning house to try and save the woman he loves. And, um, uh, but he's not like, like we were talking about, it's like, like not a super action hero, but he's courageous. He's generous. 
He's smart. He'll do whatever it takes to protect those he cares about. And if he fails to do so, he will take on himself any suffering necessary to try and quell the guilt. So, all right, well, look, this is great. I, I won't tell our listeners what's going to happen because they ought to get the book and read it, but we're going to shift. <laughs> we're going to shift to the writing life discussion a minute here. You are also a teacher of writers. You've taken this experience you've had over the many years. You travel around, you talk about writing, talk about uh, how to put books. And you recently, well, you had a book out. I was doing some research here uh, that's titled uh, Troubleshooting Your Novel, 100 Essential Ways to Fix Your Fiction. I also noticed that Steve Berry wrote the forward for that, and I've had him yeah. on the podcast twice. And oh, wow. Just, yeah, I just saw him recently in Charlotte at, Charlotte at Parker Books, and I figured – Hey, two best-selling thriller writers, uh, you included now, who've been on the podcast. I've got to have this book. So I ordered it today. And well, it'll yeah. arrive in a couple of days. And I want to know, what am I going to get? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Steve Barry was kind enough to you know, write the um, introduction of that, where we, we've become friends over the years. I really respect him as a writer and as a, you know, as a teacher of writing. And so, you know, really in this book, that all of the chapters are short, uh, maybe four pages. But it talks about a specific issue or problem writers might run into, how to identify it, and then specific ways to fix it. So when I wrote this book, I mean, I had to become an expert. I like I'm pretty good at suspense and tension and from writing, you know, over the years and so on. But I was like, look, I have to become an expert on every aspect of novel writing. So from everywhere, from dialogue to characterization to detention to resolution at the end every i think there ended up being like you said i think we started with 100 i think we narrowed it down to 80 but still there's 80 different aspects well, well then, um, then you're cheating us out of 20 because the book says 100 essential ways to fix your fiction i don't know if it <laughs> maybe it was an earlier like yeah. cover or well, something but, in, why but 80? I'll 20 more ideas i promise but why 80 and why 100? I mean, and, and oh. uh, you know, well, there could be more. I felt like there were more than that the last time I fixed my recent novel. You know, <laughs> going back through it. Yeah, no kidding. Um, but I tried to find a way to cover really the broad aspect of, you know, the different pinpointing the different issues we might run into with with each of those different aspects. And uh, so in the end, I, I combined a few, you know, here and there. Because you could have one on struggle and one on tension, or do you combine them into one in the end? You know, you just have to decide where to draw the lines. But were there any uh, on that list of 80 or 100 items that you feel like uh, are the ones that uh, sort of rise to the top that most, uh, you know, young writers or deal with? Uh, in yeah. yeah, you know, um, one aspect of writing that is not, well, there's several that are not taught a whole lot. Um, I'll just mention two of them. One is causality, which is not taught very much, but is central and vital to really any story. So causality simply means that um, everything that happens is caused by what precedes it, which seems simple enough. And you're like, well, really? That is your you know takeaway. But it's like you could write, she reached out with a trembling hand to lock the door. The killer was on the other side. But you wouldn't write that because her reaching out to lock the door is not what causes the killer to be on the other side. So instead you would write, the killer was on the other side of the door with a trembling hand. She reached out to lock it. That's moving cause to effect instead of effect to cause. So a lot of people will write backwards. They'll write something and then explain why it happened. 
he went into the kitchen because he was hungry. No, you write, he was hungry. So he went into the kitchen. And so, so this whole idea of telling a story backwards because you don't understand causality, I find it so common, both in published and unpublished authors. So understanding causality is pretty important. And the other one that I think of is just what I call the pivot or maybe a twist, you might call it. But it's that moment where everything is unexpected and yet inevitable. Like the movement of the story moves in a direction where when it happens, we're like, oh, that totally makes sense. But I didn't see it coming. Those moments are vital. And um, and hopefully, you know, hopefully when people read uh, this book, Broker of Lies or, or any of my other books, it's like, I really write for those moments. I live for those moments where there's something that happens and readers say, I never expected that, but you know, it's a good twist or whatever. So, and, 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 and so I'm not as fast as some of my friends as a, as a writer, I, I take, it takes me about a year or, or so to write each book at pretty full time because I'm really trying to find these moments and I go through so many stupid revisions. You'd probably laugh. You'd be like, like Steve, are you kidding me? You went through all this, but anyway, it's just for me. I, I that tends to be the way that I write the best is a discovery, organic writing, and of course, I don't outline or plot anything out. So this is one one area where Steve Barry and I always go back and forth because he tends to teach uh, more structure, and he's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "Well, I'll tell him my so." But because of that, I was super thrilled that he you know endorsed or wrote the foreword to you know, troubleshooting your novel. Yeah, well, that's interesting because I, I did learn that you don't plot your books. And I was thinking, okay, that's fine if you're starting out as a writer. But once you're on a deadline and you're doing so many a year, um, I would think that some plotting, I mean, not fully writing it out, would be necessary. You'll find yourself down certain alleyways or rabbit holes that you can't find your way out of. So are you a soft plotter? Maybe you're just not a full plotter. How does that work? Oh, absolutely not at all. I'm completely organic. When I start a book, I never have known how it will end. And in fact, I don't know how each scene will end when I start the scene. So, uh, but I I know what lies at the heart of a great story. And so my stories don't just wander about because I'm always focused on escalating tension, um, dealing with uh, some of the dynamics of believability, causality, unexpected twists and surprises and moving the story forward. So, so yeah, anytime I've even tried, like with, I, I remember there was one book I was writing and I was like, all right, look, I'm going to outline the scene. Like there's one scene, like I'm not going to write the whole book, but look, I'm going to outline one scene. And so I did. And by the end I was like, I looked at what I'd written, looked at my, I was like, it's not, it's like not even close. So for me, it's a complete waste of time for me to say, I'm going to outline a, you know, a book, but I'm not saying that it doesn't help some people that, that approach, but you know what, uh, another of my writing books is called story Trump's structure. And the whole idea is how do you write organically? Like most books that teach writing will say, Oh, if you don't use an outline, you'll probably have to use more revisions and so on like this, which may or may not be true, but, but I'd never seen a book or actually explained how to write organically. So I was like, All right, I'll just let people know what I do and hopefully it'll help them, you know, in their path process. Well, I am glad to hear this because <laughs> that's how I wrote my recent novel was organically. Right, good for and you. I, and I was thinking, because I like to be as surprised as the reader. I like to start a scene and then not know how it's going to finish and leave myself with a cliffhanger so that when I start back <laughs> again, I can try to figure out how to get at, get the character out of it, right? It's, it's kind of an interesting 
uh, way to approach it. So that's great. Okay. Well, I got one last question here. Um, we ask our authors this uh, on the show. If you could tell your younger writing self, which is a lot of novels ago, something of value that had you known it when you got started based on all the things you've learned since then, what would be something that uh, comes to mind for you? That is a good question. Okay, so I would say one thing I would whisper back to my younger self as far as a writer is don't fall in love with the first draft. You know, so many of us, we write, we're on fire for this idea and we write it, write it, write. And then we look at it and we're like, this is amazing. This is the best story that's literally ever been told. And I can't wait to get my Pulitzer Prize for whatever it is. (laughs) And so, you know, then maybe a week goes past or something. You look at it like, what was I even thinking with this? this business so so don't fall in love with your first draft write it on fire that's all fantastic but then take a step back make the revisions that you need to and um and you know don't be ruthless in your edits because you know care for the story be caring but um but do be you know as prudent as as you necessarily need to be as far as edits and so on so so yeah i'm a big believer in both writing when you have the passion for it and also editing with as objective of, of an eye as you, as you can. Um, but I don't like it when people are like, Oh yeah, you have to rip it to shreds. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's not the goal. Right? The goal is to tell the best story. So maybe it doesn't need to be that, but it may need to be toned up some. So yeah, yeah that's good. Well, um, are we going to see Travis Brock again? Because I, I like the character and I think this idea of a redactor is very interesting. Yeah, the next uh, book will come out next year, I believe. But I just finished it and sent it into my publisher. So awesome! That's be... about it. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's fun to see these characters grow. Maybe it's the same for you. If you yeah. write a series character, you begin to kind of get to know them and just like spending time with them. So it's it's been a fun journey for me. Yeah, while well, I'm picking your brain, since I am going to write a series character uh, or set of characters here, uh, did you find it difficult um, to? sort of help those characters evolve over the course of, because you've written one that, with the FBI character that evolved over time. Yeah. Um, or do you, or does it just come to you organically as well, that these are real people, their lives are changing, things are going to happen? Yeah, there's two, well, there's there's a number of different perspectives on story and character. Some people are taught and believe that a story is there to change a character. You'll hear this taught all the time at writers' mm-hmm. conferences. That if your character doesn't change, you don't have a story. But when you look at so many stories, it just doesn't happen, like sitcoms. You don't come back to a sitcom day after day because the characters are fundamentally different. You come back because they're fundamentally the same. Uh, You don't come back to a series character like Patrick Bowers with those 11 books. People didn't come back to see him different. They came back to see him because they loved who he was. So the the second perspective on uh, stories, that stories are not there to change characters, but to reveal characters. So there's some nuance, and and I won't get into all of what my perspective exactly is on all that. But I think it's helpful for authors, specifically, to be aware of these two different nuanced uh, ways of looking at character and story. So um, is your character there to change, or is he to be revealed? And so I think with with my series characters, I know people want to come back because they want the character to be fundamentally... um, congruent with the previous book but they also want to see him grow or be revealed in some way and so 
for each book, I try to give them a central internal struggle that actually will draw out more uh, depth to them. So in the one that you mentioned, The Broker of Lies, has to do with justice and injustice. And so with this next one, it actually has to do with forgiveness. And what does it mean to forgive? Should you forgive everything? Does forgiving everything diminish some wrongs? And just this idea of uh, forgiveness. And so so in each of the books, he kind of has this internal struggle, I think, to dwell on. And uh, hopefully it, it makes the books the stories richer in the end. Yeah, well, great. Well, thanks for that little lesson. That's helpful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Put that in. Well, Stephen, look, it's been great. Uh, I want to thank you for uh, being on the podcast. I look forward to receiving your book that either has an 80 or a hundred. <laughs> I can fix my next book. That's so funny. And, <laughs> and uh, thanks. Thanks for being a part of the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Good luck with your writing. Thank you. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. All right, here we are in Act 2. Uh, we got our writing topics with Charlotte Litt, uh, and we've got a blog post as well. The, uh, the Charlotte Litt tip is uh, from Paul Reale. Uh, and it's called The So-Called Rules of Writing, Part 3. This is a series that he's been doing. Hi, I'm Paul Reale, co-founder of Charlotte Lit, with a two-minute writing tip for Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is one of a series of tips about the so-called rules of writing, in which we take on those rules and take them apart. A common piece of advice is, you should write for yourself as your first audience. On the surface, this is irrefutable. You are going to be the first one to read your work. You are the one who needs to first be pleased with the work. You aren't likely to want to show your work to someone else until this is true. And so, on its surface, I can accept this. Yes, you should write to please yourself, as you are, in fact, your first audience. Underneath this, however, is the implied notion that you don't need to think about the audience as you write, that maybe you shouldn't think about your audience as you write, that you should just write. Maybe, but let me remind you that for the vast majority of everything we write, the writer expects there will be an audience at the far end, an audience who is not ourselves. As a side note, this is true even with our journals. Most people expect that someone, their children, if not their future biographers, will read their journals. I believe it is folly to imagine writing without thinking about that future reader folly to ignore thoughts of how best to lay out the story or how to keep it interesting or what conventions your genre requires or how old your readers might be. If you're not thinking about your future readers, you're missing out on the opportunity to see your work as art, to imagine the reader holding your work of art in their hands. Yes, it's also said that we must first write for the joy of it. But I believe that much of that joy comes from the hope that somewhere down the line, our words, our art, reaches an audience, an audience that we can and should see as we write. For more two-minute tips from Charlotte Litt, listen to Beyond 300 episodes of this podcast or visit charlottelitt.org slash tips. All right. Thank you, Paul, for that. Uh, I love the fact that this uh, post just sort of skips over the whole commercial nature of uh, writing. It's not about how much money you make from it. Uh, there's a more 
artistic side of it and maybe what's going to be there long after you're gone. Sarah, does that resonate with you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, this is a really interesting topic and I, I like hearing Paul's take on it. I think that it can be tough to find that balance between um, like thinking about the audience versus not. And I've heard writers say that a lot of like, oh, you shouldn't think about the audience. You should only write for yourself. But I think Paul's right. Like that's, it's not realistic to completely forget about the audience unless you're, it wasn't it Emily Dickinson who just like wrote poems and kept them in a drawer or something and they're all discovered later. <laughs> so maybe she really did just write for herself. But I think most of us um, probably if anything, think a lot about the audience when we're writing. And sometimes it might be helpful to have that mindset of like, okay, write more for yourself just to dial yourself back from that stage, I guess, of thinking too much about the outcome and too much about the audience, especially when you're still at the first draft point. Um, I think it's helpful to focus on yourself and what excites you creatively and just not censor yourself too much at that stage. But yeah, like if your intention is to get the work out to an audience and at some point you have to think about that, maybe you don't think about it in the first draft. Um, but some, some way down the line, you're going to have to think about it. And, um, if you're making crucial decisions in the first draft about like the tone or, uh, the sort of age range of the characters, things like that, like that's all tied up in audience. So it's hard to not think about that at all when you're starting out. Yeah. And one, one way to think about it too, is if, um, you know, there are a lot of people out there in the world that maybe like the same kind of writing that you do. Um, and so maybe when you're writing for yourself, you're also writing for other people that might like to read the same kind of things that uh, you like to read and write. So um, maybe just keep that in mind. You get a twofer there. You <laughs> write yeah. for yourself and you're writing for your audience too. Uh, but Hannah, you, um, you know, when you're working with authors, uh, I know you sometimes ask them questions to sort of draw them out beyond the book itself and one of them is you know why are you writing this story you yeah know, do you ever sort of get down into that with with uh, writers yeah for sure I mean I think like I'm going to use uh Marjorie Hudson as an example right now just because um she was probably I guess on a past episode it's hard to tell <laughs> where we're at when we're <laughs> doing so many in a row um but she's a really great wonderful writer and her book um took her 30 years to write and I remember the first thing I asked her was, you know, like, why did you start writing this? And she's like, oh, my God, I don't even know it at this point. It's like you go back and you just sort of like she was thinking about like all of her experiences that kind of fed into it. And just, um, you know, her book is called Indigo Field. And it's all about just like place holding history and secrets and that kind of thing and how that, um, you know, it kind of impacted her her role as an activist in the community so it's like talking to her about that like what's the origin of all this like did you think people would read this like was it something that you felt like would actually get published because 30 years is a long time you know so she was like I don't I honestly don't even know like I started this story didn't know if it was gonna how it's gonna pan out and I think a lot of writers I've talked to are the same kind of way where it's like you kind of start something not really knowing if it's gonna finish itself at any point like and I think as you move forward as an author and you continue to write books it's probably less of that but um you know not every story does complete itself and you don't really know where it's gonna end up and I think uh it is kind of impossible to not think about the reader when you're writing something I think like because you're just like okay well this is my career this is my job my business is writing I want this to kind of land with somebody how do you how do you not sort of tie it into 
<laughs> you know, who, who, who are my readers? Are they going to read this and enjoy it? Um, so it's kind of a, it's a, definitely an interesting topic. And I think every writer who is writing a book that they are passionate about or want to complete, it's, you kind of have to find that median, um, that like middle ground where it's like, I need to stay true to myself, but also make sure that I'm, um, pleasing or satisfying my readers in the end. Yeah, and you make an interesting point uh, about satisfying your readers. And Paul has mentioned thinking about your readers. And it, it, this month's, uh, yeah, this month and last month, Writers Digest, the whole magazine was about genre writing. And they talk in there about how, you know, there are certain things you do, certain tropes you hit, uh, certain things that readers expect, uh, depending upon the genre. Um, and, uh, you know, a mystery is different than a thriller and a thriller is a little bit different than suspense. And when you try to package it all together, um, it might become difficult, even though that's what you want to write. I mean, you can't do some of that. I, I kind of fudge a little bit. I call mine cozies with a bit of a thrill, you know, so, yeah, I, love that. I like that, I like that, uh, you know, to go there, but some people, I remember one, uh, I think I was speaking to a cozy mystery group and they said, you know, this had a, a little bit of a thriller component to it. And I'm, I wanted to know, is that good or bad? I mean, because they, they like to read the cozy part, right? And they're not into the to the grit side of it. Um, and so I think you have to remember that when you're writing. If you wanted to write a successful, dark, police procedural, you know, there are certain things you need to do, and it's not cozy. <laughs> and if you're writing a cozy mystery, uh, you know, a lot of things that readers like are the settings and the characters and the cats and the dogs and the quirky neighbors and that kind of thing. Um, but that's just part of writing. So if you like it, write it and there will be an audience for it because, uh, there's as many different kinds of readers as there are books out there in the world. So thanks Paul for that. Thanks for letting us have that conversation. Um, after this quick message, we're going to jump into our uh, community blog post. If you like what we're doing and would like to help us defray the costs of this podcast, please consider becoming one of our patrons through the Patreon website. For as little as $5 a month, say a coffee or a happy hour drink, you can help us out. And in return, we have a library of exclusive episodes, over 120, that you can access through the Patreon website. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Weir's podcast and join up. You can cancel any time, by the way, and we thank you in advance for whatever you decide to contribute. All right, here we are with the uh, community blog post. Uh, Joe Conjol blog post has three words I live by. Uh, tell us about Joe, Sarah. Sure. Uh, Joe is a great friend of the show. He loves a good mystery. It's what inspired him to become a writer. He's the author of the Rasmund Mystery Crime File series starring Tony Rosalito, P.I. Deadly Passion, which is book two in the series, recently won a Speak Up Talk Radio Firebird Book Award in the crime fiction hard-boiled category. He's written three books in the series, and book four, Best Served Cold, will be released at the end of uh, March 2023. So I think at the point when this episode comes out, that book will also be out. Um, when Joe's not writing, he, he can be found spoiling his three grand children. I love that. Uh, I like the name of his character and I like the fact that he spoils his grandchildren like I do. My wife Janet was uh, joking with my daughter Jordan recently about uh, the difference between um, mothers and grandmothers and mothers when the kid says, uh, hey, I want a sandwich that's a certain way. They say, hey, eat what I put on your plate. <laughs> and when they ask the grandmother, they say, would you like it cut up into hearts? Oh, stars? <laughs> so cute. I love that. <laughs> 
So that's that's the difference. That's when you spoil your grand. I want Janet to be my grandmother. <laughs> Can I be your adopted grandchild? <laughs> she, she would, she would, Hannah, she would adopt you. Oh my she god! Loves you. Well, I love her too. Obviously, I want some heart uh, sandwiches from Janet specifically. <laughs> okay, all right. She'll cut them up into little hearts for you. Right. Thank you, Janet. <laughs> All right, well, let's uh, listen, listen in to Joe. I'm sure he's got something uh, really helpful to share here. And my blog post is called Three Words I Live By. Never give up. These three words, when looked at separately, are really not that compelling. But when put together, they become one of the most powerful phrases this writer needs to hear. They become the first part of a sentence that, when I add the word writing, conveys a thought that reminds me of why I wanted to write in the first place. How many times have you had a great idea for a short story or a book only to let the evil thoughts inside your head cause you to procrastinate or, worse yet, totally give up on breathing life into that great idea? It's happened to me many times. I have a huge file on my computer stuffed with unfinished great ideas. Recently, I visited that file to remind myself of what was in there. It had been accumulating for so long I'd forgotten what was inside. Reading through the partially written stories and the pages with just a germ of an idea on them reawakened the possibilities of what I truly had. Some thoughts squirreled away and there weren't half bad. Others needed a lot of work. All were ideas I believed could blossom into amazing works of art. So why didn't they? The simple answer is that I gave up. When attempting to form those ideas into stories that someone would want to read became hard, I let those evil thoughts stop me from trying. The minute it became frustrating, I put it away for another day, a day that never arrived. I allowed everything and anything to delay getting back to writing. Not because I don't enjoy writing. I do. It's one of the most cathartic things I do in my life. When I'm writing and it's going well, it cleanses my soul. But writing isn't an easy process. If someone tells you it is, they're lying to you. It takes careful thought to put the right words together to form a good story. And that takes time. I hear other writers talk about all the stories in their heads that they have to get out through their writing. They say they need to write no matter what. Honestly, that's never been me. I came to this writing thing late in life. When I was younger, I wanted to be the next great cartoonist to hit the comic pages. The first time the thought of becoming a writer even crossed my mind, I was in my 40s. I didn't act on it until I was 58. But once I started, I have not been able to stop. That doesn't mean that occasionally I don't think about giving up. For me, the process of writing can be challenging. It can be exasperating and aggravating at times. I'm also a slow writer. It takes me forever to get the words the way I want them on the paper. And after everything is finally the way I want it, and I've put it out there for all the world to see, it can be extremely disappointing when it feels like the world doesn't want to see my masterpiece. The last couple of months have been eye-opening for me regarding my writing habits and my frustration level because of said habits. I've had a lot of things that legitimately got in my way over the last few years, but that's in the past. Those things are no longer obstacles. Now that I'm semi-retired, I'm able to better schedule my writing day. But I came to be a writer by choice. It was never a calling for me. So if I let it, that disappointment and frustration that occasionally hits all of us would be an easy-peasy reason for me to quit. But I've realized that I don't want to quit, that I couldn't even if I wanted to. Who knows? Perhaps writing's been my calling all along, and it took me 63 years to recognize that fact. There's a note taped to my computer that reminds me to never give up. It helps keep me on track. Three simple words, strong words, 
helpful words. I'm currently knee-deep in finishing the fourth book in my mystery series, and I've started writing a book for a multi-author mystery series to be released later this year. I'm also reworking a few of those filed-away great ideas, and it's something yet to be determined. I'm so glad I didn't delete that file of abandoned thoughts, unfinished stories, and ideas. Not giving up feels really good. All right, Joe, there's a lot of uh, a lot of good advice uh, packed into that uh that blog post, um, congrats on the fourth book and the other book that you're going to have in that uh, collection. Um, and I can relate, 63-year-olds to recognize what's really important, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, hey, Sarah, what do you think? Um, this is great. I mean, there was so much that was inspiring about Joe's words. You know, the fact that he didn't come into writing until middle age. He says he's a slow writer and he still has, what, four books out at this point already? Like, that's huge. So if if he can do it, anyone can do it. Anyone can write at any stage of life. I think that's something that we kind of return to as a topic on this podcast. Like it's never too late. Um, even if you have other jobs, other commitments, like you can always find time in your life to write. Um, and it's for everyone, which is wonderful. And yeah, that idea of never give up, like it's, it's something that we hear a lot as writers, but it bears repeating over and over again. Cause I think that it's tempting <laughs> all the time to give up as a writer. I mean, writing is hard. Uh, and you know, maybe that's like a kind of privileged thing to say. Maybe if I were working like down a mine all day, I, I would think writing was easy, but <laughs> writing in a lot of ways is it's very, very hard. And psychologically it's tough. Um, and there's a lot of temptation to give up and you have to be very self-motivated and driven and find that kind of fire within yourself to keep going. So yeah, I love that he has like the post a note for himself to, to keep that reminder as he's writing. Yeah. So Hannah, what do you have posted to your, um, whatever that uh, lets you do those 80 things. I should do that. I, I was literally, th- that was something that stood out to me in this post was that he has that, like, don't give up on his computer. I was like, I need to do something like that. That ke- keeps me focused. <laughs> focus. I'm going to do that one. <laughs> focus on your tasks for today. Um, yeah. I, I think I love Joe. I, I love his voice too. He has such a like calming presence. And I think it's great too, that he said um, he chooses to write because it, it is a choice ultimately. And, you know, it's he, he says it wasn't something that called to me and um, but it's something I really enjoyed doing and I wanted to do. So I choose to do it every day. And so choosing to write, choosing to not give up, making these decisions, I think gives you I think just making good decisions is one of the biggest confidence builders in the world, like being confident in your choices that you make for yourself. That's something that I think um you know, we should all kind of prioritize in our lives, no matter what career or what task you're doing is just kind of, I'm going to do this. And that, that sort of in itself, like just do it. And that gives you enough confidence to kind of carry through the task. So, I mean, but, but yeah, that it's funny that you mentioned that because I'm like, I need to get some, some uh, post-its up here in my, in my grizzy so I can (laughs) stay on my stuff. (laughs) Well, well, Joe mentioned some uh, topics we've covered. We've done some, uh, uh, episodes on procrastination um, and uh, but this idea of unfinished uh, great ideas uh, I think is a good one we've all got uh, files I found somewhere when we're moving some really bad stuff I'd written down and gladly didn't publish <laughs> at the time but, but the ideas were good it's just I wasn't a very good writer uh, back then and and so maybe the ideas can be turned into something a little bit better now that I've learned a few more things about writing but I'm really glad to find that he thinks semi-retirement gives you more time because, uh, I don't know, it seems to me like uh, when you're podcasting and you're grandchildrening and you're moving around and you're talking and 
right? It's hard sometimes to schedule things, and uh, but uh, I'm glad he's found it. Uh, I like the idea of never giving up as well, and uh, we are not giving up on this podcast. We didn't give up. We brought in Hannah. We brought in Sarah. And we're making it happen. <laughs> we're <you> still <laughs> here. <laughs> we're not giving up through the moves. We're gonna we're gonna record a bunch of episodes in advance so it doesn't kill us. You know this. Yeah the summer uh when you're hearing this uh so yeah so thanks uh joe for for sharing that uh folks never give up uh keep after it uh, it is never too late to writing i'm exhibit a uh for that um we've uh we know that uh even into your middle 60s you can uh you can put out books and have fun doing it all right uh, right after this we're going to come back with uh, act three our book recommendations and what's coming next If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottereaderspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits, but with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play, or participate in an author or marketing talk, or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750-word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. All right, here we are in Act 3 uh, with our book recommendations. We'll start with uh, Hannah today. Hannah, what you got for us? Yeah, I am recommending a book called Girl A by Abigail Dean. Um, this is a book I read uh, later last year that really kind of stuck with me. It's sort of um, like a psychological thriller, but, you know, a lot of the themes in the books that I recommend, I feel like, are all about your childhood. <laughs> so this is no different than that. Um, just kind of uncovering mysteries within yourself. Um, it's about a... Um, you know, a family that basically just had a horrific, horrific, these kids that just had a horrific childhood and how it kind of impacted them growing up. And a lot of uh, internal mysteries where there's, there's a moment towards the end where you're just like, oh my God. <laughs> so that's, you know, when you're reading a book and you think you know what the story is and then you just find out that you had no idea what the story was about. <laughs> that's what this book is like, which I love that when it's done really well. So it's very dark. Um, you know, setting is a huge part of this story. It's very dark kind of strange house um, where these, this family grew up and lived. And, uh, but it's, it's very good. It's, I think this is her first book, I think. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping she writes more because I think she's got a lot of great ideas just about how scary we are to ourselves. So <laughs> it's, it's a good one. It's a good thriller. It sounds good. The mystery inside of us. Uh. Yeah. All right, Sarah, what you got? Yeah, that one does sound good. Um, so I'm recommending The Man Who Is Thursday by G.K. Testerton, which is um, an older book. I think it came out probably early 20th century. This is a book that I read in high school and loved, um, and I, I need to find time to reread it more recently now but it's just it's so unique it's ostensibly I think like a crime and suspense story but it, it doesn't necessarily read that way it's just the way that it's told is very sort of spirited and philosophical and there's a lot of surrealism in it it's basically kind of insane <laughs> um, I think the full title is actually the man who is Thursday colon a nightmare so <laughs> that sort of tells you a lot about kind of how it reads it really <laughs> feels like you're reading just a weird dream and it gets progressively stranger as it goes on so it's a lot of fun it's entertaining it's thought-provoking um, he's one of those writers who just could craft a sentence like no one else like just the way that he strings words together was mm. so skillful and so unique so um, yeah it's a very very one-of-a-kind book and I love it I like one-of-a-kind books all right 
All right, well, um, I'm picking books this month that have been challenged in schools, resulting in temporary or permanent bans in school libraries. Something to know about that, too, is that when someone challenges a book, even if they're unsuccessful, they can get removed for a period of time. It can get put on a shelf. It can put it uh, in a special section. It can be taken out of a curriculum. Or the principal may decide, uh, you know, just because of the politics of it, they're just going to remove the book uh, without uh, involving the higher-ups. So um, this next book, I, I mean, I just can't quite figure out why someone would challenge this book, but it's part of that whole thing that's going on in the world now. The book is Roberto Clemente, Pride of the Pittsburgh Pirates by Jonah Winter. Um, and to know a little bit of something about Roberto Clemente, um, this is a kid, a uh, baseball player, came from Puerto Rico, uh, didn't have any money, very poor, um, and he made it in the major leagues and became a, a right fielder of Pittsburgh Pirates. Um, but he had to battle racism, and I guess that's the... Uh, critical thing here with, with some people who want to challenge books. Uh, and he tells the truth about it. Uh, he talks about, uh, you know, uh, that experience. Uh, his nickname was the great one. He led the Pirates two world series, yet, uh, 3000 hits and was the first Latino to be inducted in the hall of fame. But, um, he, and he was also humanitarian. So who bans the, who wants to ban these kind of books? Well, people that, I think are not comfortable in their own skin. Um, but worse than that, I think it's people who think that, uh, you know, you need to ban a book that talks about racism, that talks about our past, because we just don't want to make our kids feel uncomfortable about the past. Well, here's the point. You know what? If you don't let children uh, read these kinds of books, they won't have empathy toward people that have experienced what they've experienced in the past. It's better to read and to understand than it is to exclude and be ignorant. There endeth my sermon. <laughs> All right. Amen. Amen. Amen to that. Amen and amen. All right. Let's hear what uh, Mark West has to offer this week. Hello. This is Mark West with the storied Charlotte Block. My book recommendation today is a perfect book for Mother's Day. It's called The Three Mothers How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a nation. This book is by a scholar named Anna Malakia Tubbs, and it was published in 2021. I just recently discovered this book, and I'm very impressed with it. In this book, the author not only discusses the lives of these three mothers, but she shows how their approaches to motherhood have shaped the values and activism of their famous sons. I highly recommend this book for anyone who's interested in black motherhood and motherhood in general, and certainly in the civil rights movement. Thank you. All right. Uh, thanks, uh, Mark, for that uh, recommendation. Hannah can relate to motherhood, right? I Hannah? sure yeah. can. Love that title. You got, <laughs> got your first Mother's Day coming up. I yeah. know. I, yeah. Oh my gosh, right. I hope I get some good presents. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, look, uh, let's, uh, we got. Um, some good stuff coming in June here. So, uh, Sarah, what's uh, what are we doing in our first June episode? Yeah, um, we're going to be super excited next time to feature award-winning mystery and true crime writer Kathy Pickens. She's going to be riding along and co-hosting with us. Um, we're also going to talk about her recent book titled Cru- 
True Crime Stories of the South, which dives into the rich history of criminal behavior in the South from Texas to Virginia. Plus, we're going to feature book four in the Right Quote series, which is called Storytelling, Inspiration, and Research. Um, We'll share audio versions of the forward and reflections and a peek by the hosts and Kathy at some of the quotes that we love from that book. And then we're going to have elevator pitches and book recommendations. All right. Until June, Hannah, take us out. Read on, ride on, and rock on.